to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like a, like a sex machine, man. Moving, doing it, you know. Can I count it on? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, one, two, one. this developer's life, then you can thank the fine people at Twilio, T-W-I-L-I-O. If you need voice or SMS capabilities for your application, go check them out at Twilio.com and let them know how much you love them for supporting this developer's life. Also Sublime SVN. If you use Subversion and you run Windows Server, you absolutely must check out Sublime SVN. It's a web-based management system for Subversion that allows you to manage users, repositories, emails, and RSS, as well as backups. Head over to SublimeSVN.com and watch a quick video demo to see more. And give them some love for supporting this podcast. Dude, I have a great idea. Let's do a podcast. We can do we can do a thing like This American Life, and I'll loop in some groovy tunes. What do you think? What are you talking about? I mean, what is this? What is this awful music? There's too much music. You should try something that sounds a little more like. Oh come on! Okay, just play along. All right, I'll get to the point. If this podcast didn't exist and I just Skyped you one day and I, while you were, you know, I don't know, installing some kind of service pack or something and I said, dude, let's do a podcast where you riff and I play music in the background and we talk to people who are miserable, what, what do you think you'd say? I would probably say that it's been done before. I'd probably stop pronouncing my L's uh, and... Uh... <laughs> And honestly, really, I mean, I've listened to your music. I don't want to listen to your weird hippie music. Uh, I would tell you to do a podcast without the music. You call it Connery Minutes. So, okay. You know, yeah, music. Where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah, your blog. Oh, man, the comments on your blog every time you put up a show. Oh. But, you know, I have... Person. I know, I must, but you should know by now that making fun of me is painful, at least as far as you're concerned with, with this show. Yep, you are an angsty teenage girl, uh, but I personally have had a great time, you know, listening to what you can do with my, my voice using the high-quality professional tools uh, like GarageBand. Uh, <laughs> seriously, though, what is this music? This is a problem. Uh, what is the show this week is Rob playing with GarageBand while Scott brings his wife and family on, and uh, you dub in some awful music. It's just incredibly compelling, very emo stuff. What is the point to the show again? <laughs> Oh, that never, ever gets old. Okay, so here's my point. I'm genuinely curious. What would you have said about my podcast pitch to you? I mean, I'll tell you what I think, right? If I say to you, hey, Scott, let's do a podcast, right? And you, this podcast didn't exist. You would say, no way. I mean, you know, right. you're like Mr. Geek Hollywood, right? I mean, how many <laughs> podcasts are you on? I mean, how many recordings of you are made each week or, or day or each hour, right? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I probably would have been skeptical, but I would no more skeptical than if you'd 
you know, invited me over for tacos and said, hey, I've got a great business opportunity for you. And, you know, uh, nobody wants to get involved in yet another failure. Oh, true. But I think you have probably been a little bit more than skeptical. But all right, well, okay, so I'll let that go. Here's my point. You have got a squelch filter, a geek squelch filter that is set pretty high. I mean, you know, squelch filter, like the button on your kid's Right, right. I know what a squelch filter is, right? It increases signal to noise by reducing the noise and also the incredibly bad music and uh, (laughs) mix-up. It it filters out the nonsense, yes. No programmer is a fan of nonsense and no one wants to waste people's time. I mean, my whole other podcast is dedicated to not wasting people's time. Like right now, I think you're about to come to your point. Right, right. I mean, I get that. Okay, so, all right, to my point, how did your squelch filter get set so high? You have to fail. I failed a lot. I've been involved in a lot of um, well, dead-end projects, death marches, I suppose you could call them. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, myself, I'm sure any kind of, you know, relatively senior engineer, here's a lot of ideas from people. You always get pitched. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll listen to anybody for a couple of tacos, but that doesn't mean I'm going to sign in as your CTO. As we go, like a buddy of mine, uh, years ago, we have this, this joke, which is uh, expiredfoods.com. Your B two B marketplace for for food that has reached its expiration date. <laughs> my my buddy Joe convinced that this is a great business idea. You know, we all have the kind of like, dude, expiredfoods.com. We have to make this happen. Quit your job, move into my garage. Right. It's gonna be awesome. Okay, so this all right. So of course, to anybody listening now that has a few projects under their belt, I mean, of course, that sounds horrible. And in fact, I'm sure there's some people out there who are saying, you know. I've actually worked on a project like that. My, my point being is that now, of course, with hindsight, you can easily make that call. You can say, oh, well, expiredfoods.com it sounds horrible. But when you're <laughs> just getting started, when you just start programming, you, you know, you're starting to build websites and you think, hey, this is really cool. I mean, don't you think it's a little, a little, a little yeah. harder to make that choice? Because you don't have, you're not jaded. You don't have the scars. Uh, you, if you haven't gone on a death march, you don't know enough to, uh, Say, gosh, I don't think that's a good idea. You don't yep. have this. You don't. You know how you get code smell? You develop code smell. You have to get project smell. Exactly. It, going. You know. Hey, let's let's all go on a hike in the desert without water. That would be awesome. Let's do that. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because, like, you. So whenever you go out with geeks, I'm sure, like, when you go on your nerd dinners, people sit around the table and they start at some point kvetching, right? Someone will lift up a, their geek slave and say, look at these scars I've got. And then, you know, you start bantering back and forth. Well, well, like these guys. Quickly, the, they started hiring more marketing people and the requirements really just started getting weird. That right there is Chad Myers. And lo and behold, we came to find out that it was a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, and if that just sounds weird, multi-level marketing dating site, then yeah, it, it, really was, uh, it really was crazy. Turns out the owner, we believed, had a serious cocaine habit. And uh, he was one of those sort of slimy uh salesy you know he would come in and you know tell us we had to work at all hours of the night which was really tough because i i had just had my second child at that point and uh, you know the family was really ramping up and so it was tough he came in one time with uh you know i i don't know this for certain but sure looked like hookers on on either arm 
and he sort of flaunted them, walked up and down the aisles and flaunted them and, you know, introduced us to him, you know, and it was like Bambi and Bimbo or something. I can't remember their names. And then they went into the conference room and closed all the blinds. And then, you know, we heard lots of giggling and um, I'm sure there was lots of grab ass and stuff going on in there. Wasn't able to use source control. This is Sarah Chips talking to Scott Reynolds. Because he didn't know how to use source control and he wanted to be in some way involved in the code. Right. Right, so I was just, uh, you know, pushing, I guess, my code, you know, the the whole X-copy source control thing up to a a central server. Well, server, whatever. It was his PC. Um, In the meantime, I am making legitimate progress on the piece of software that he wants. And it's actually in kind of a usable form. I mean, it's not like a full-featured whatever, because it's only really been like a month and I've been doing other things, but it's, it's in pretty good shape, and I have put a lot of work into it. And he decides one day in mid-January that um, he is unhappy with C-sharp. Okay. Because he can't follow it, and he doesn't understand the code I'm writing. And right. he's been looking at it at night, and he doesn't know how to make changes. Okay. Facepalm. <laughs> Start over. No. No. Yes. No. No. No, no. Just wait. Don't even react until I say the rest of it. <laughs> In access. <laughs> Pretty much got the call, showed up the next Monday morning. And this is Doug Roar. And somebody kind of pulled me over to the side and said, just so you're aware, we only bill 40 hours a week on this project, but we're working about 50 or 60. I don't know, it was a week or two in when we had this giant pizza party because the application would build. Not that it ran or that it worked, just that it would build. So they had taken an existing app and kind of gutted it and rewritten large chunks of things uh, to make it work in a new context. It had taken them something like two or three months to get the app to just compile again. So there we were eating pizza, drinking beer. Everybody's very excited about the fact that the application compiles and I'm kind of looking around going, what is going on? Is this what enterprise projects are really like? Yikes, okay. <laughs> that's uh, well, that's actually quite typical. Uh, I mean, I want to be like, oh no, that's, I've never had that happen before. But, you know, we've all had just really uncomfortable programming stories uh, you know some of them are a lot more painful than others but you know as you gain time and you spend more time in the industry you'll toughen up and you'll eventually decide uh, not to do that uh, you'll you'll get your your project smell developed you'll dial that thing up and you'll start saying no i think saying no and avoiding the, the, these projects is a a big part of growing up yeah and i think that by the time i'm 40 i think i'll have that skill well absolutely but i mean you can't just all of a sudden 
have a squelch filter. You have to work a number of projects before you can decide, I don't want to do this project. In other words, you need to have been burned at least once to understand what being burned feels like, right? Absolutely. It's, it's about being burned. It's about being boiled slowly. Nobody joins a death march. No one says, I've got this great contract in Pennsylvania. It's a death march. Would you like to join our death march? No, it happens slow. You turn the heat up slow. The frog doesn't know he's getting boiled. Hmm. Never tried to make Skype shut up before. Right. Yeah, so, no wait, so who's this, uh, who's this you're going to be talking to? Who's this in the background? Okay, so this is Doug Rohr, and he's, uh, he's getting set up. And he and I, uh, we sat down and we talked about a project that he was on that was literally sucking the life out of him. This, this was, just check this out. This was the part that got me. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you wonder why, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, I, I was away from my family for the better part of a year. Um, I missed the first year of my son's life. Basically, he was three months old when I left on this project and I was home maybe two weekends a month if I was lucky. Oh man. Yeah, that wouldn't work. That would not work for me at all. I mean, I can't imagine for you either. No, not a chance. Absolutely not. But, you know, then again, some people have the luxury to some degree being able to turn down projects. Uh, you don't want to, but we've all been in the situation where you're on death march, but at least it's a paying death march. Well, Doug sounds like a really smart guy. I mean, I have to think that, you know, even though if you really needed a job or, you know, I mean, there has to be a line that you're not going to cross. I mean, what keeps someone like Doug going on a project like that? That is exactly what I asked him. Number one, as a software developer, why do I do this? Why do I allow the project to make me do these things, right? Because sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes it's, this is my job and the economy right now is really bad. If I were on a death march today, I probably would be carefully sending out my resume, but at the same time, understanding that, you know what, this is what I got to do. And if you got a family and a mortgage, that's what you do. But there are other reasons people do these things. I, I think back then, being younger and a little bit earlier on in my career, that was certainly part of it. But there was also this, I have to prove myself to the world kind of thing, you know, uh, to my peers, to my new company that I just started working with. Um, and as horrible as the death march is, there's this incredible camaraderie that comes out of it. You know, there were 20 of us in that room every day for a year going through this stuff. And at night we went out drinking and played full contact darts and, you know, just generally got to know each other really well in a way that I, I think is almost impossible otherwise to a certain extent. Interesting. So Doug has this project that is driving him crazy, making him stay away from his family. He can't see his kids grow up, yet he's managed to bond with the people that uh, he's working with. That's, that's fascinating. I mean, we've all, we all have stories like this, I'm sure. In fact, well, I mean, you do too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've all got stories like this. Mine was actually years ago. In fact, when I was done talking with Doug about his, I just kept the recorder rolling and I told him my story. My favorite story is when we were working at, um, at 800.com and 800.com was like a pre-Amazon.com video service and you would 
go up and DVDs had just come out. I want to say this was like 99, but I'm not sure. It was early, whenever DVDs first came out. And uh, it was running on like ISAPI and classic ASP and we didn't have offices. We were sitting on the stairs in a marketing company and uh, it was just very sleep with the, you know, sleep with the servers kind of an environment. And, and the marketing people were just making up stuff. They were just pulling marketing square out of their butts. And uh, one of them was like, hey, how about three DVDs for a dollar? And then they just said, okay, cool. That's a great idea. And then they put it up. They didn't do any testing. They didn't do any scalability. They just said, let's do three DVDs for a buck. And the internet showed up the next day. They just descended upon us. This is before Twitter, so everything spread on Usenet. You know, three DVDs for a dollar? I mean, it was just bananas. And what happened was, from a technical perspective, is that it changed the way that the site scaled. You think about a site that is a product catalog, it is a shopping cart, and it's the checking out. So those are the three aspects of a site. And you figure that 99% of people are browsing, and some small percent, 1%, 2% of people are putting things in their cart, and a percent or two are, are checking out. I guess that's like 104%, but you get the idea. Uh, that ratio changed. Suddenly, 1% of people were browsing, and 99% of people were trying to check out. They were trying to give us money. So our site wasn't optimized to take their money as fast as possible. And ironically, they were only giving us a dollar. It literally would have been easier to just give them the DVDs for free because it would have taken the pressure off the shopping cart and the checkout process. But the entire web farm kind of scale got flipped on its ear. Because at the time, you know, thinking about web farms was not sophisticated. I think we were doing 40 or 50,000 concurrent users on, I don't know, five or 10 boxes. It wasn't big, but it was big for 10 years ago. Uh, and we were on a death march then. It was like, you better get this up. You're turning away business. You know, every hour goes by, we're losing business. All the tricks that you know how to do today, we kind of like figured out just on the, just in, on the fly. Uh, move all your images to a different DNS server and have them serve from a separate place. Um, have your shopping cart on one farm and your uh, product catalog on another farm. And then eventually when it got so crazy, we made the product catalog static. Such an obvious idea. Isn't that just the thing about a death march, right? You look back on it and you go, wow, you know, we could have just turned left and it would have been fine. Uh, had we simply made the product catalog uh, read only that would have taken all the pressure off of that, which is what we ended up doing. We made it a we made the three DVDs for a buck pages and all of those products and those DVDs that were eligible for that read only. They were like text files. It almost seems like this kind of storytelling is built into our DNA. Like we're warriors, we want to share our stories. Oh, okay, are we Radio Lab now? I mean, which which national public radio show are we going to rip off now? This is where you have like a scientist come in and explain to us how a butterfly flaps its wings and then a software engineer fails to compile a thousand miles away. Okay. Yeah. All right. You got me. I mean, I love Radio Lab. Sure. Fine. Well, let's just stay on track. There's something there. I mean, you hear a story, you want to respond with a story of your own, a bit of like camaraderie, kind of like band of brothers. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I see that. I mean, in fact, when I, when I spoke to Doug about why he stayed in that project for so long. One of the things he mentioned was exactly that. And as horrible as the death march is, there's this 
incredible camaraderie that comes out of it. You know, there were 20 of us in that room every day for a year going through this stuff. And at night we went out drinking and played full contact darts and, you know, just generally got to know each other really well in a way that I, I think is almost impossible otherwise to a certain extent. I've definitely felt that, you know, I mean, you're on a team and we'll get this done. You invent opposition, if you will, some sort of made up thing that you're fighting against as a group. A lot of managers will actively use this tactic of making you fight against the odds to make the team band together. I mean, it reminds me something that Javier Lozano said to us in episode three. There were many times where I would reach that point and, you know, it's like, damn it, we know we're going to spend, you know, be here as long as it takes. And um, I guess at that point, it really wasn't because of the problem, right? It was because because I wanted to I wanted to succeed. I wanted to have a win for myself and the team. I wanted everyone to say, yes, we tackled this together. It sucked. But, you know, band of brothers, we move forward. This is all great. And um, it sort of builds that camaraderie, right, that, that every team yearns for and, and wants to have. And I bet you if you ask the team members now, if you get them together I mean, in like several years after, um, they will be, they'll think the same way. It's like, yeah, you know, we, we got it done. It was, it wasn't pretty, but you know, was it important? No, it was important, more important for us to do it and, and build that, that strength around us and making sure, Hey, we, you know, as a team, we can accomplish anything. Sure. Sure. But does that really describe the motivation or is that just a managerial tactic? I mean, with Doug, I mean, here's a guy who's being dragged through a nightmare of a project, right? He's away from his family, his kids. He's got some camaraderie, but seriously, you're not seeing your kid, your wife, except for a week and a month. I mean, maybe if you're in the military, but not in the software development. I mean, we're not saving the world here. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't add up to me. Yeah, me neither. Uh, one thing that Doug said, however, resonated with me and seemed to add a bit to the why. But there was also this, I have to prove myself to the world kind of thing you know, uh, to my peers, to my new company that I just started working with. Which makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you have your squelch dial turned to, to what, 9.9? Oh, I can't even hear you, my friend. <laughs> right. I suspected. Well, I mean, you have your squelch dial set precisely because you've seen these things happen. You have the scars, but you don't when you're just getting started, which is kind of what we're talking about before. Doug seems like he is just a bit beyond getting started. He seems like he knows what he's doing. He's been around. But it also sounds like he wants to prove himself for, I don't know what, like upper management, a promotion. There's a lot of people that will bend their own wills. They'll, they'll do things they don't want to do, flex their family like Doug in order to succeed. All right. I think I'm ready to go. Okay. So, so who is speaking here? This is Chad Feller. He's a prominent figure in the Ruby community. He co-founded the International Ruby Conference as well as the International Rails Conference. Big name in the Ruby world, yada, yada. He wrote a great post the other day that I read about developers being stuck in Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, you know what Stockholm Syndrome is? Right, yeah. Stockholm Syndrome is when you, when you basically fall in love with your captors. Uh, let's put it in the terms of software. You get a job. You hate your job. It's awful. It's literally torture and you're trapped. But after a while... Your only redemption is is found through those that have put you in that situation. You you uh, live for your managers. You live for the march. You know you're going to die, but uh, you love them regardless. Right. 
Yeah. And I called him or I sent him a little uh, email, I should say. And I said, well, do you have experience directly with this? He said, oh yeah. So I asked him directly, why do you continue working in a death march, dead end nightmare? My career started with me being a professional saxophone player who was really into Doom. And and being into Doom got me into computer programming which and just computer support, which basically just opened the door to the career, you know, during the dot-com boom and all that. Um, so therefore, I always had this feeling of being kind of an, an imposter. Um, and there's actually a thing called imposter syndrome, which is said to lead to Stockholm syndrome in some cases, in, in these sorts of cases, where imposters can't recognize their uh, accomplishments for being their own. You know, for me, it, it must have been luck because I had no qualifications. I'm working with all of these people who have all of this experience, you know, years of experience, degrees. I have no degree, and all I had done with my life before then is study music and play music professionally. So coming into the situation like that, I was very impressionable. And I felt like I was just getting lucky over and over again. Maybe I didn't deserve the, the stuff that was happening to me, the good stuff that was happening to me. Um, but I also probably really intensified my uh, desire to fit in and uh, the whole isolation of it all. Um, I also felt, therefore, kind of stuck because I didn't know if what I had done there would translate to the quote-unquote real world. We had such a bubble, a cultural bubble there. And um, the, the perceived inability to escape a situation, even if it's not negative, is also one of those four foundational situations that are said to lead to Stockholm Syndrome. So I recognized that, and I, I didn't know it was Stockholm Syndrome, I probably didn't even know that term at the time, but I recognized that I was feeling stuck, trapped, not in a negative situation, but I could see it becoming a negative situation if I wasn't careful. And I like to be in control of you know, my job and my life. So I made the decision to leave that company simply because I was too comfortable and I felt like I might be um, getting myself stuck later down the road. Interesting. Okay. Well, I don't think I've ever had to deal with a situation quite like that, but it makes sense. Oh, really? Listen to this. You're sitting in a meeting where you don't want to open your mouth because you're afraid that you're going to say something stupid. That sense of, I am the stupidest person here. Uh, okay, right. Sure. Yeah, but that's Microsoft. It's a little bit, a little bit different. Really? I mean, you don't feel like you need to prove yourself there maybe just a bit more? I mean, it seems to me that the stakes are a bit higher for you. Like, perhaps you would feel the need to take higher risks, uh, to do things that demand more of your family. Ask your family to give in a little bit more as far as time goes, maybe more so than when you're just starting out. I mean, I know I did. I remember a few projects that, well, they weren't death marches, but at the same time, let's just say it made me feel uncomfortable. I mean, I did them anyway. I knew the time demands and everything else were a little bit much. But I mean, don't you think that it's kind of the same thing? Well... 
so okay, let's say let's say this way: developers that are let's say early in their career are prone to take on more risky endeavors because they want the experience. Presumably, they don't have a choice, so uh, or they necessarily don't have the experience to identify that what they're getting into might be a bad idea. So, I mean, I agree that the stakes can potentially get higher as your career progresses, but I, I disagree that you're more prone to fall into a death march. I think that the more experience you have, the less likely you are to do the wrong thing. So, listen here to how Sarah Chips breaks down an offer for a project that she was asked to jump on recently. She recorded a segment for our show, and she was, in fact, talking to Scott Reynolds in New York. I had, I was approached by someone, um, I think I'm kind of spoiled, I was approached by someone a, a few weeks ago to work on a project, and there was a lot of red flags. Um, he mentioned he had been through six or seven developers so far. He mentioned that he had been <laughs> swindled by a few of them. Oh, God. Uh, he, the project has been um, in the process of being worked on for seven years. Um, it, he had the Facebook idea before Facebook, um, so it's oh, the answer to Facebook, did. but he's never been on Facebook because he's he's angry. You know, like it was it was just like a lot of things um, that, that that I think I'd have to turn down just on the face of it. <laughs> yeah, if only it was that easy. Wait, wait, now you're saying that it's not? Well, sometimes not. Well, so listen to this. I talked to Chad Myers about this just the other day. Uh, he worked for a consulting company, you know, dot com, super neat idea uh, manager. That well, here I'll let him describe this guy. Turns out the owner, we believed, had a serious cocaine habit. And uh, he was one of those sort of slimy, uh, salesy, you know, he would come in and, you know, tell us we had to work at all hours of the night, which was really tough because I, I had just had my second child at that point. And, uh, you know, the family was really ramping up. And so it was tough. He came in one time with, uh, you know, I, I don't know this for certain, but sure looked like hookers on, on either arm. And he sort of flaunted them, walked up and down the aisles and flaunted them and, you know, introduced us to him, you know, and it was like Bambi and Bimbo or something. I can't remember their names. And then they went into the conference room and closed all the blinds. And then, you know, we heard lots of giggling and um, I'm sure there was lots of grab ass and stuff going on in there. Okay, so we have a manager who is clearly a bit of a sleazeball. I mean, why did Chad do it? I was working as a consultant and they put me into a, a dot-com startup and I wasn't the team lead right away, but I was uh, tapped to be the team lead shortly after there. So I walked into the middle of, of the project and it was already, you know, fully ramped up. I guess they were planning on hiring one or two more people, but, but it was in full swing. And uh, at first it seemed like a really exciting thing. It was, it was a dating site, an online dating site. And they were starting to do some cool stuff with Flash, and um, they wanted to do instant messaging inside the web application, which was fairly new at that point, instant messaging through the web. And then they, you know, we had to do all the stuff with blocking and, you know, making sure that people couldn't harass other people. And So what, what happened? I suppose it's your typical story in this way. He worked the long hours slaving over the code and driving his team to produce more and more, burning the midnight oil. And eventually things came to a head. You know, one night after having been uh, working, you know, till two or three in the morning, several nights successively, I came home and my wife was there with my, my daughter, second child, and she had waited up for me. It was like three something. And she was just crying and she said, Chad, I can't do it anymore. And, and that's when I, that, that put the nail in the coffin. That's when I knew, okay, something's not, I can't make excuses for him anymore.
you gave reasons mm-hmm. that you had to stick with this cocaine hooker guy and yeah. and then you come home and your wife is falling to pieces i mean that must have been crushing yeah you know because you know she she saw through everything right away you know what she saw the simple facts the simple facts is i was staying late for work this thing wasn't going anywhere it was supposed to be going you know these all the promises that had been made to me that i turned around and made to her uh, none of them were coming to fruition and so you know she saw right through the whole thing and you know it's tougher when you're right in there in the middle of it because you th- say well you know maybe he missed this prediction or maybe he missed that promise but but there's still a lot of potential here you know there's still you know we're getting in on the ground floor this is going to be really great and really awesome and you really you just lie to yourself and like you said stockholm syndrome but uh yeah there's there's a uh, that's another reason why i love having a family is because it really keeps you honest there's there's no there's no lying to the family you can lie to them all you want but they see right through it Okay, ouch. I mean, I'll I'll give you that. I've been. I think we've all been there. We get a little swept up, a little carried away. Our families react to it, and they pull us back down to earth. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week in disconnecting. Family first. I found when I when I had kids, just for me, and this is probably why I'll never be a millionaire and I'll never be a uh, vice president anywhere, was that as soon as I had kids, my my sense of uh, career aspirations just stopped. You know, family first, career ninth. That's just that's just how I roll. And uh, you know, more and more, I think people realize that uh, that old adage is true. No one ever finds himself on their deathbed saying, "Man, I really wish I worked more." Right. Okay. So let's bring this back on track. I mean, what we're talking about here is well, we started out with the metaphor of squelch job, but let's let's maybe put this to where other people can understand. In Hollywood, they say, you know, you make your career by the scripts that you turn down, and so you know, it seems like. The same thing holds true for our industry, that you have to master the ability to say, I will not take that project. It is going to flex me too much. And you get to a point where you start understanding that it's more important to turn a project down to keep your family life, your personal life, and everything intact. It's much more important. As a matter of fact, um, Sarah, who we just talked about, she talked to Scott Reynolds, a former geek just like us. Uh, He writes for McSweeney's now. He doesn't do so much development anymore. Um, One of the interesting things about him, as opposed to Doug, but he seemed to know full well what was happening to him when he was in the death march. He had sort of a presence of mind as, well, this is hopeless. Here, well, I'll let him tell you. The time I was, I was, um, I was living in a very small town that had really no tech. So uh, I was working part-time at Barnes & Noble in the cafe. Like, and, and this was after I had been a software developer in Boston for several years. Like I, I knew, you know, I was employable. There was just no employment. So, uh, even, even afterwards, I was still living in that same place. And, and like, you know, some projects are, they're not going to happen, but you know, you've got a job. So what are you going to do? Right. Right. You just slog through it, even though, you know, bad stuff is going to happen. And then you're like, well, Maybe I can say I told you so to somebody and get a little personal satisfaction out of it. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to rescue this. So I, I come in one morning and he was there. Like his like car was a there. a total Joel test fail. Now just to catch you up, Scott and Sarah are talking about Scott's employer, the guy who wouldn't let Scott use 
source control and wouldn't let him use C-sharp, instead telling him to rewrite everything in Access. Oh, and uh, by the way, apologies up front for the sirens. The story's just too good. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Zero on the <laughs> Like a negative 86 <laughs> on the Joel test. Um, so I come in one morning and he's there, which is odd because he's a night guy. Um, and like he usually does most of his work from, like he'd come in at four or five in the afternoon and work through till till six in the morning and go home and go to sleep. Like my interview with him was at 11 o'clock at night. Right. Um, that might've maybe been a red flag, but I was kind of a night owl too. So I was like, Hey, this is cool. Um, so I get there one morning and he's there at like, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. And so I kind of got that feeling. I was like, this is it. We're done. Right. Um, and so I come in and he's like, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. And he goes, yeah, you know, um, I hired you to, to fix my accounting stuff. It's like, eh, no, you didn't. But you know, okay. Okay. Sure. That's what you hired me to do. And it's been months and you haven't done it. Well, I have twice actually, but okay. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to have to let you go. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And he's like, I'll give you two, uh, you know, two weeks or, uh, two, two paychecks of, of severance. Huh. I was like, sweet. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> and so I, I left in my laptop and I hopped in my car and I didn't have to put my coat on because I already had to wear it at work and I went home, took a nap. Well, that, that's extremely, I would even say remarkably grounded. I mean, good for him. He, he's able to recognize that it's just a job. And here's a guy who is able to either turn down scripts or uh, take them and with his eyes wide open. And what did you say that he's doing now? Um, well, I think he quit the internet basically, and the whole development thing. And I mean, now he's writing full-time for McSweeney's. Hmm. Well, maybe he didn't handle it so well. <laughs> it was true. I guess I didn't think of that. I mean, I bet there's a number of ex-developers out there that, well, cracked, for lack of better words. I'm mean, not saying Scott did, but the pool is thinned because of it. I and mean, Chad Fowler handled his situation pretty well. If you remember his story about being an imposter, well, it turns out that he worked for a guy who was a pretty charismatic character. He did all the things that a cultish style leader would do. They're picking favorites and militaristic leadership style and so on. And then comes the day when Chad's had enough. Like your dad wants you to join the family business and run it. And you have no interest in running a dry cleaner. And finally you have to tell him. That's kind of the way it felt to let this guy know. And the funny thing is the conversation where I let him know, um, at the time I was actually a couple of layers down the chain of command from him um, doing a specific project. And it normally wouldn't have been him that I would have told, you know, if I kind of followed the normal corporate chain of command when I was ready to leave. But one day he sort of unexpectedly called me into his office because another one of the leaders was being transferred out of the organization and he was basically offering me um, suddenly a big promotion and a position on his direct staff, which is exactly the direction I'd been trying to go for years. And it was in that conversation that I had to say, I can't do that because I'm going to leave the company. So the way I felt when I left was um, actually at first just very emotional, um, not negative or positive. I think by the time I got home, I was absolutely comfortable with the decision. Um, it's one of those funny things that I had felt sort of trapped 
for a long time, um, trapped, you know, by my own devices. And as soon as I realized that I could untrap myself, I was no longer worried. Um, for one thing, I knew I had left on good terms. I hadn't even left yet, but I knew I was leaving on good terms. I had seen people leave this organization and come back, so I knew that was an option. But I didn't expect that to happen. What I expected to happen was that I would go out into the quote-unquote real world, um, try what it's like to be in a smaller, maybe faster-moving more agile organization. I don't know why, but the moment when I broke the chains in this one organization was the moment that I realized that I wasn't an imposter. I can identify with that. I felt for the longest time that I was just a geologist you know, who could code? I wasn't, uh, it wasn't until a few years ago, I guess maybe when I got a job at Microsoft, that I stopped feeling that way. I mean, and look what Chad's doing now. He's a prominent figure in the Ruby community, organizing conferences, appearing on awesome derivative podcasts like this one. Um, yeah, like, like this one. It's, and certainly he should have turned the script down if he's talking to us. We've had some interesting stories this week, right? Doug talks about proving himself while you know, bonding with his peers, working on a project from hell. Chad comes of age, as it were, starts to believe in himself more and his abilities. You know, a trial by fire forces him to confront his boss and exit on his own terms. And Scott Reynolds, he knows what's happening to him. He knows it's just a job. He collects a paycheck, again, on his own terms, goes home, takes a nap. I'm not sure where this leaves us other than a little bit uh, depressed. Well, I think one thing we can say, and this might be an overly stereotypical male thing to say, but in a way, well, I mean, a death march is a proving tool. It's a strengthening tool. It's like a, like a no, geek. No, you, you are defined by your failures in life, right. not by your successes. Yeah. I, I remember getting a resume from a guy who put his name and then comma, MCSD, Microsoft certified this and that, and the commas and the all caps and the commas and the acronyms went on and on and on. And I wrote a blog post about this saying, we should put the number of failed projects, right? I want to see Rob Connery, comma, eight failed projects, two successes. And that tells me this is a guy who or gal who has suffered. And in that suffering comes wisdom and introspection. What do you think about as you move through your career that, you know, in the beginning, as we keep saying, you don't know the projects that are coming to you. So you, you'd be more apt to take the death march. But as you move on, those death marches become bigger. In other words, the bad scripts that you receive become worse. But then once in a while, you're going to have to take one. I mean, you're going to have to put more skin in the game if you want to succeed, if you want to become the CTO. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's just like in Hollywood, using the script metaphor, it's about the scripts you don't take that make your career. But sometimes, you know, the trick in reading a script is, you know, who's directing it and what's it going to bring me. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have to do a Jersey girl if you're going to get, uh, you know, the town or something like that. You, you do a bad film and it makes you grow and then you move on to the next thing. I mean, I might, if I was offered a job at Twitter or Facebook, go on a death march just for the building, the, the character building, as my dad used to say, right? This is character building, like all through Karate Kid, all that wax on, wax off. That was character building type stuff. And as you get older, you get better at selecting those scripts. Uh, you know, but you know, there's always a shark out there ready to be jumped. 
You remember this in the happy days, right? You're the Fonz, it's the 70s, everyone loves you. And then you read a script where you get to water ski over a shark. And this is where the term jumping the shark comes from, right? There's nothing left to do. Happy days, the Fonz, it's the number one show on TV. What are we going to do now? Let's jump a shark. The whole thing went to hell after that. <laughs> that's, that's just something that screams no. I mean, Fonzie, water skiing, a shark. I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, I would just, I would look at that script and I would think no in blaring, bold, red letters. But then again, well, I mean, it's not like I'm a stranger to situations that are nothing but, well, horrible. And, and I do it anyway. I remember this story. I could have avoided all this. I know that. This is probably the worst part of the whole thing for me. I knew it the very first meeting. I knew it first month, second month, first week through the 12th. I knew it the entire time, but I kept believing in myself. That happened to me uh, actually quite recently, and I kind of feel like I'm old enough to know better. So you're, so you're Fonzie. <laughs> More like Potsy. I mean, now that would have been funny. Can you imagine Potsy jumping the shark and getting eaten? I mean, that would have been a better script. But anyway, it's the same thing with me. All right, so here's the thing. You're saying someone should have told Henry Winkler, don't jump that shark. And here you are, jumping the shark, right? It's always the guy who quits smoking, who tells the people, you need to stop smoking. Nothing worse than a reformed uh, <laughs> shark jumper. <laughs> All right, I can't hide from this one. I mean, it was a professional shark jump right there. And you're absolutely right. I mean, but I... I I didn't do it because there was nothing left uh, to do. I mean, it's not like I, I did all the things and all of a sudden, well, hey, now I got to go, you know, do this really stupid project that I know I'm going to get fired from. I mean, I did it for all the reasons that we kind of talked about earlier. My friendship, money. I mean, for all the reasons I knew it would fail, I sincerely felt that I could make it work specifically because of my experience. Uh, but really, it was mostly money. Uh, <laughs> and there it is, right? <laughs> okay, well, let's spin it this way. It happens tomorrow. Not in the past. Is this something that you would look at and remember vividly what happened to you? Or are you going to go and ignore it ever happened and then just plow forward? Oh, I'll remember. And no, it will never. I'll never do that again. I mean, I will seriously go get a job as a bartender down the street at the at the Gourmet before I go against my instincts. Uh, you know, Or in keeping with our analogy here, uh, dialing down my squelch button or accepting a really bad script. That shark has been jumped, my friend. You know, I still find it curious that you would even uh, make a mistake like that in the first place. I mean, they, they put you up against offshore developers. They pay you a rate that's way, way below what you should be making. They totally make it clear to you that their ability to manage the client and their own process is going to be a problem. It doesn't get much clearer to me. And, you know, Sarah, too, it sounds to me like it was uh, the same person, right? Sarah said no. And you're like, eh, sure, why not? All right, I'll tell you what. I have another theory. You like being boiled quickly. You want to be thrown into boiling hot water. You think that's fun. You are a risk taker. Uh, you know, you said to yourself, you like the startup scene. You left the uh, Microsoft. And what did you do? You, you started. I You started up. Yep. I jumped onto a startup shark. Very risky. And I remember telling you that was stupid. I remember telling you. Uh, actually, you told me you cashed in your 401k to do this. Is that true? Yep, I sure did. And now I can see, see, now I can see you ending up in a story like this. You've hired someone to do tech pub with you. You are running around the office with hookers and you're doing coke off the desk, <laughs> presumably on a Macintosh. And in other words, uh, you know, when you risk, when you risk that much, you, Rob, are now the unstable weird manager guy. Have you become that oh, guy? Jeez. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes I feel that way. Sure. Okay. I'll admit it. I mean, I think, 
I definitely have seen, I mean, let's just say that I'm understanding more where these guys come from. Okay. I mean, I have a lot of skin in the game right now. And yeah, if you took me from 10 years ago and made me work for me right now, uh, yeah, I might think I'm a bit off my rocker. Sure. So this is a risk-reward thing, right? You and I can sit here and get all kind of alpha geek warrior and talk about scars and get all chest dumpy. Uh, but in the end of the day, right, this is self-inflicted death marching, right? You yeah. you have decided to do this and you're going to go for it. It's almost like you're uh, one of these old guys in the Expendables, you know? All I know how to do is go to war, you know? And there's a, we're going to Grenada, everybody. It's totally self-inflicted. I've, you know, I've thought about that. And yeah, I think... A bit of it is absolutely self-inflicted. I mean, here's an analogy that always seems to work for me. Surfing. Uh, It parallels life in a lot of ways, right? All these variables in the water, wind, water, wave, everything, stacking up to present you a, a wave that you get to ride on top of. The wave changes shape every single second you're on it. The wind changes directions, changes speeds. You have to adjust as you go, much like life. Now, some people love to ride the bigger waves because the variables, well, they get more intense, right? Uh, bigger variables, more choices, bigger consequences like dying. Uh, others enjoy the more mellow ride and smaller waves. So it's like in life, risk reward, as we've been saying. But in a lot of ways, the guys that ride those big waves, they are driven to do it. A lot of them would say it's not really a choice for them. Sure, sure. I'm more of a doggy paddle type of a guy, but I'll get there. I'll doggy paddle for 15 years, but I will make it, right? But you're saying some people are more prone to take death march projects. It's just like an adrenaline junkie. There's a there's a bigger risk to themselves and to their career. Yeah. Well, okay. Right. Well, remember, Alex, listen to this. Listen to his pitch here. Every time I've, I've gone in search of a new one, I've found a slightly even crazier idea to pursue. Um, I mean, with with Bank Simple, it's it's basically let's let's go out and fix banking. I mean, that's that's it's kind of nuts when you think about it. Um, our our creative director is fond of saying that there's there's something kind of punk rock about starting a bank because it seems really fundamental. It's like it's like a hospital or a school or, or so, you know something in your community that seems like this this bedrock that's just always been there you know you don't really think about somebody actually going out and starting it so the the idea of you know going and and planting this seed yourself is is weird so let's pretend you don't know who alex Payne is would you ever in a million years leave microsoft to work for some guy who says to you we're going to reinvent banking come along with us that's 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 not really in my dna right well i mean i probably wouldn't either but at the same time I mean, Alex just came from a service that, on the face of it, well, it's not terribly inspiring if you think about it. And I'm talking about Twitter. I mean, an SMS service for friends, really? I mean, isn't that Facebook or a, I don't know. I mean, oh. do we really need that kind of thing? No, I mean, you have a point. I mean, I was, <laughs> I'm all about Twitter, but I was one of the people who thought it would be, you know, nothing. I didn't think it'd become Twitter. Yeah, me neither. I was like, oh, tiny blogging? Wow. Constrain it to the point of uselessness? Yeah. I would bet against Twitter every time. Right. And for all the people that we've interviewed talking about death marches, I have to think, well, there's some percentage of people who think they're in a death march only to find out that, boom, well, it's a big deal. It's Twitter. Hmm. There's a show. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, let's see. The death march that could. I mean, what would we call that? I like, I like one word names. I like what we've got going here. Maybe like the long shot or just long shot. Yeah. All right. You got it. All right. Well, let's come back to this week. I think we learned something here. Okay. Well, we came into this 
initially just asking people about the worst project they've been in on. The idea was to collect stories of death marches. I think we just assume that these projects just exist, and it's just a given. They would never succeed. I mean, death marches never go anywhere. That's why it's a death march and not a life march. Right. And I think what's closer to the truth here is that these projects are just higher risk. Uh, I mean, sometimes with ideas that are so out there that we as developers, well, we can't identify, we can't see how it could possibly succeed. So we just say it's a death march. The bigger the risk, crazier the PM has to be to push the idea forward, the more we say this is a death march. Are you saying that there's no such thing as an actual death march? I think I am. Yeah. Because, I mean, every death march has a chance of succeeding, no matter how small. I've seen it happen. I mean, I'm sure you have too. Project you were certain wouldn't succeed, and guess what? Twitter, Facebook, Amazon. Groupon. Yep. A ton. uh, GitHub. Any of the big sites out there. You never know. Maybe the project you're on right now. Now, it seems utterly mind-numbing, horribly boring. I mean, it could be the next (laughs) Facebook. All right, let's keep it real, right? I've seen the social network. The odds against that are pretty high. Yeah, you could be right. But hey, did I ever tell you that I had an idea about a podcast where we talk to people and we play some music, we rip off NPR, This American Life, but it's for developers. Dude, could we do it all in GarageBand on a Mac and then <laughs> pick, pick music that uh, is like Creative Commons? Oh yeah, let's do that. Can we just read the sponsor list now? Not, not until you admit that I have a good idea with this podcast. Come on, come on. Okay, wait, wait what? a second. What is this here in the background? Is this? Are you seriously playing Lady Gaga? You know, it, you know I would never have been on this show if you were going to dub in Lady Gaga. I would. Oh my god, this is hurting my ears. this week's This Developer's Life, and to remind you, we couldn't do this without Twilio and Sublime SBN. They're helping us pay for things like bandwidth and production tools so we can continue creating awesomeness for you. Please check them out at twilio.com and sublimesbn.com, if only to say thanks for supporting this podcast. Ready, B? Ready, B? Ready, B? Let's go get him. 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 Let's go get